0: So, we are on number 398 of Conversations with Yogananda. I happen to see on the internet that we started this class four years ago. Yeah, four years. We haven't done it every week because I've left town for long periods of time. I've fled the coop. But here we are still. We just finished class 108. So, so much for ending on a really... We're just going to end in some random number at this point. Okay, number 398. A newcomer said to the master, wine, sex, and money are, you've told us, the three greatest delusions. Why do you name these three particularly? It's a good question. Wouldn't it be fun to be able to ask master questions like that? (laughs) Yeah. The master replied, "They they are delusions because more than most things, they cloud the mind and confuse it. Moreover, they may actually seem at first to clarify it. Thus, their influence is doubly insidious. People imagine that drink helps them to clear their minds. In in vino veritas is the ancient saying, wine makes one truthful. What it does, in fact, is make one incautious. (laughs) Again, people see the possession of money as a support for their self-confidence. It gives them the courage to express themselves fearlessly. In their overconfidence, however, they often blind themselves to other people's realities and become increasingly insensitive and unaware. And as for sex, people say it releases them from mental tension and in that way it clears the mind. This release too, however, is temporary. Abuse of sex has nothing but deleterious effects. The long-range effect of all these so-called fulfillments is that they dull the sensibilities. A mere glance into the eyes of those who are addicted to them is enough to reveal their mental confusion. They are unable to gauge things in correct proportion. Those three delusions are the greatest, finally, Because though man is subject to countless other delusions, these three of them all are the most addictive to the mind. Oh, boy. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's personified as wine, sexuality, and money. But what you're talking about is you're talking about categories of attempts to... Um, to escape from the inevitable demands of our own consciousness. You know, there's a a story that I remember back in the beginning of awakening, which would be in the 60s and the 70s in my life, and in America it happened. And there was, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross started doing a lot of work with helping people to die, she began the hospice movement. Prior to that, there was no, at least in the West, there was no awareness of how you could really help people through the death transition. You were just in the hospital and the doctors tried to the last minute to save you and then you died and everybody felt like something horrible had happened. It was very unwholesome. And she began a movement of helping people to accept and to relate to death in a conscious way. And there was also another man whose name was Stephen Levine, and he and his wife Andrea um, did a lot of work to help people who had terminal, il- terminal illnesses and things. These are all things that are very vivid to me, but they were 40 45 years ago. And uh, so Stephen Le- Levine wrote a book called Who Dies, which may still be a classic, I don't know, because it's been such a long time. But there was something in that book that I always remembered i often i will i would i I read a lot of different things that interest me, and I usually just pull one or two ideas from it because master's teaching is enough. but he talked about the process of dying, and he talked about how often when a person is on their deathbed and there's going to be he said there there's often a period. And and Kubler-Ross and Stephen Levine, they they documented a lot of these things that people hadn't talked about before. I'm sure nurses and doctors knew it, but it wasn't common parlance. He said there's often a period of time where the dying person becomes just frantically restless and often very agitated. And then usually after that, usually if they live long enough, there'll come a period of acceptance and peace. And what he described that period of, of... franticness is when they begin to lose control of their of your physical body because if you're dying gradually you, you just can't your body begins to, the, the life force withdraws from the edges I remember when a woman friend of mine was in her last days, she was lying on bed and her head was in a very awkward position and her friend said, you know that looks so awkward why don't you move onto the pillow and she said you have no idea how much effort it would take to move my head at this point. It's just like there was just no life force in her and she just and I remember another woman I met just talking about she just didn't know where her arms were anymore. She sort of her arms would bang against something she just didn't know where they were because her life force was coming into the center but but what happens when you get that weak and that ill, and I think I was talking about this some last week. We're so accustomed to doing something with our willpower through our body whenever we feel it all restless in our minds. I walked in here at 7 o'clock and it was very hot in here. And we set up the camera. As soon as I had a chance, I walked up and I went over to the teaching center where it was air-conditioned because it was hot here. And so I moved my body to a place where it was cool. And when I got home from a meeting this afternoon... I was hungry, I opened the refrigerator, I put the toast in the oven, I put peanut butter on the toast, I sat at the table, all of it was dependent on my being able to move my body around. But the impulses that arose were I was hungry, I was hot, you know, I was having experiences, or it can happen, I feel restless, I feel bored, I feel anxious, I think I'll see if I can watch a movie, you know, I'll go out and ride my bicycle, I'll do something to change the way the inside of my brain is. But he was talking about when you begin to die and his phrase which I vividly remember we're used to solving the problems of consciousness by doing something through our body and when our body won't respond anymore we have to solve the problem of consciousness on the level of consciousness. And if you haven't practiced meditation or prayer or a mindfulness or Hong Sau or something like that and your mind begins to agitate what will you do with it? And that's where he said this tremendous anxiety comes in. And then usually because it's a process of dying, at some point there'll be a surrender. And he says often people will die very peacefully even though they were agitated just before because some part of them will suddenly recognize that there is no problem. <laughs> you know, I just, it's just a habit to make me think I have to live through my body. I can just lie here and be perfectly content and then withdraw I've been with enough people who have died and watched the process, which is by no means hundreds or dozens even, but, but enough, that I, I can see what the process is. And sometimes myself, Master said, we should, get, we should surrender the whole world back every night before we fall asleep, give up everything we're attached to, which I can't do. <laughs> but I can die, because I've seen people die. <laughs> and I can imagine myself dying, and I know just what the scene will be. You know, I I know that some of my friends will be there and they'll be serious a little bit and some of them will be sad and then they'll sort of forget that I'm there and they'll start talking over my head about various things that are going on and then they'll tell a few funny stories and then they'll laugh and I'll just be pulling farther and farther back from them so I I can kind of practice that when I fall asleep because I I know just what it'll be and we'll all have a very good time when I leave I'm sure you know it'll just it'll be just fine but it's just accepting that that's what's happening. So, for all of us, we're we're all always having to deal with whatever is inside of us, whatever we're aware of, whatever we've tuned into, whatever aspect of creation we're... we're you know, Master said thoughts are universal and that we just merely attune ourselves to, to vibrations of consciousness that we then imagine are us. Because, and it's just so... It's just so fascinating. I've been having a very difficult time for about the last five months, four months. I think the last time I made a recording, I talked about this dilemma the community's been going through and the jeopardy we've been facing for our survival, which is still there. But just on Saturday night, I don't know what happened. God just came in and he said, you've worried enough, you don't need to worry anymore. Nothing has changed. But all of a sudden, I'm not worried. And it's just like, oh, like where does it come from? But once the inside of your head is different, everything is different, isn't that so? But imagine, you know, and we can easily imagine, you know you, you, you really want something to fix it. I certainly understand that. You just really want something to fix it. So sexuality is a great distraction and really uses up all your time and tension and your energy, and intoxicants just are, are marvelous. I'll go back to sexuality in a moment, but intoxicants are just absolutely perfect, aren't they? You know, you uh, you, you drink a little wine, you take a, a beer, you eat a lot of sugar, you whatever it is that actually sort of fixes your physiology, and then all of a sudden it's not quite so intense. You know, I've lived in a world so long where nobody drinks, and I grew, grew up in a family where nobody ever drank, ever. It just wasn't part of it. I was in the house of a, a relative of mine and I opened the refrigerator and there was beer in the refrigerator and shut it like that. It was just like, it was so startling to me. And I just went to him, a young man, and I said, you know, I've never, I've never really known anybody close who had beer in the refrigerator. And I knew I sounded like an idiot. But that was just the way I, I grew up and then all these years as a yogi. But of course, you know, people like to quote, take the edge off like that. But see, as Master describes, the problem is, and this is what's so hard for us to understand, the only way to escape from suffering is to expand our consciousness. Because suffering is always going to be there. People are going to die. People will betray you. Age will overtake you. Health will break. Money will be lost. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big, long story. I don't have to keep going. You all know it. It's a, it's a grim story. And it's, it's like the Buddha said, it's the threefold suffering of the world. Old age, disease, and death. As long as we're on the physical plane, we are vulnerable. So we can do everything we want to try to make ourselves invulnerable. Sooner or later, suffering will strike us or suffering will strike someone we love. And it's pretty close to the same thing after a while. You know, it's the agony of somebody who loves suffering is almost as bad as when it happens to you in some ways worse. Because if it's yours, at least you can deal with it. If it's theirs, you have to watch them. So we can't get rid of suffering by pretending it's not there. The only thing that makes suffering bearable is when our consciousness is big enough that it can just be the surface of the ocean. Because the masters are more sensitive to the suffering of this world than any of us are. Because they have such a tender heart and they have, I mean, they just have the awareness of everybody's consciousness. It's just, I don't know how they live, really because they're just aware of what everyone's going through. But their consciousness, they see it, they live in this great ocean of spirit, so even if someone is suffering, you see it looks like this. And if instead, when we're faced with the oscillations of, of pain and pleasure, or whatever it is, and instead of expanding to see it in proportion, we contract so that we don't have to feel it at all. But it doesn't stop. We've just hidden ourselves. So when we open our eyes again, it's even bigger because we've responded to it by trying to shrink into ourselves. And this is just, it's a a very natural delusion. I mean, uh, Master talks more that the mind becomes dull, that discrimination becomes injured, you know, that that we, we get confused by what's really true. I mean, when you don't drink at all, which of course I I don't, when you see people... I remember being in a restaurant, actually we were probably with Swamiji, and the people next to us, they, they just started drinking wine. And they just got louder and more raucous and more sort of coarse is the only word I can think of. And it was sort of like they didn't start out that way. And we gradually realized, of course, that they were drinking wine. And they were all becoming more incautious. But watch from the outside, they were just becoming more coarse. You know, just louder and you could hear the tone of their voice and the way they would move. They didn't think anything odd about it at all. Many years ago, it would have been 1981, when I lived at Ananda Village, we were working on it. We we made an effort to incorporate Ananda Village as a California city. And it was a, a... an outrageous little project that we worked on for 18 months and in the end we failed. We, we, we weren't approved by the local area formation committee. It was a political issue. They just, couldn't, they just couldn't see their way to do it. But in the process of working on that, we made friends with a number of people in Nevada City, the local town, and, and they were people who were important to the project we were working on. So it wasn't, it wasn't insincere on our part, but we knew that it was helpful to make friends with. And so when this one man invited us to his company Christmas party or something like that, it's a very small town, we we agreed to go. So this other woman and I, Dallas Atkins, who were working on it, we went together and we got to the party and I don't know how many people were there. It wasn't, you know, it was a room, nothing like this. It was just a spacious room and there was a piano but the piano was turned toward the wall so it was clearly not part of it. And we were just there and we sort of, like we're we're used to Ananda. Is there going to be a P.G. Woodhouse reading? You know, is there going to be a musical performance? Are we going to all sing together? Do we have, you know, are we going to do some folk dancing? I mean like, but we gradually realized that we were just going to drink. Really. That the whole party was everyone was just going to stand there and they were going to drink alcohol. And then the more they drank alcohol the more lively they would get and then they would all go home. We were just like, So bewildered. I mean, we'd become so naive by that point. We were just so bewildered. So we stayed for a while until uh, the alcohol started kicking in and people started getting raucous and we just got in our car and went home. But it was so sad. It was just so sad to us because these were very nice people and the man who'd invited us was a very fine man. But this is how they escaped the boredom or the anxiety of their minds was that they just uh, w- went lower. Because then they lost contact with how bored they were, and they they thought they were very entertaining. I don't know what they thought. You know, they weren't alcoholics, but even a little, when you're not used to it, looks very very strange to you, because it's just it's just not something you're used to seeing. This is about vegetarianism, but I remember being in a restaurant once, and this waiter came by with a big piece of steak and handed it to this man, and you know, I'm just so naive. The thought came to me he must be embarrassed to be eating that here in public. <laughs> and I thought, of course he's not. It's just, it's considered a great treat, but my brain gets twisted after so many years. I've learned to pass for normal, but every so often these things cross through my mind. But anyway, so he talks first about wine, and he talks about wine in that way. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty of it, is that it tries to solve the problem of consciousness by reducing your awareness, And you simply, there is no lasting comfort in reducing your awareness. Because, as he said, you forget it, but as soon as you come back, it's still there. But you've weakened your will in the process. Swami uh, commented once that his observation of the long-term effect of of the use of marijuana, which, of course, until recently was illegal, but was still widespread, and in the world especially the early years of Ananda where many people who ended up in the ashram sort of started out through the hippie movement where there was both psychedelics and marijuana and some people continued using marijuana for a long time. Swami said his observation of the use of marijuana is that it gradually saps the willpower. Which I thought that was what he saw in people. And I actually thought about that for a while because I had had... I never liked drugs very much because I liked my own mind. And anything that confused my mind in the little bit of that that I did when I was like 18, I realized that all I would do was wait for it to be over, which is really not. I mean, like, why are you doing it if you're just waiting for it to be over? But I, I did enough to realize that what happens when you get drunk or when you get high or whatever you call those things, psychedelics are a whole pushes it a little farther but you have the impression that a lot is happening when nothing is happening you know you just feel like you're having this big experience you know people who uh, smoke marijuana it's like you get you you know you you get really interested in things (laughs) and you just think that something's so like isn't that gorgeous kind of just it's just crazy but you know there it is and so you, you think you can have experiences without putting out any energy. And that's where it gradually saps the will. Because if you can just get high, then you get the impression that something is happening. But it's an entirely passive experience. And so the understanding that the, the effectiveness of my life is the result of the willpower I put into it, that, that connection just gradually goes away. I I used to joke in the early years when there were lots of communities starting in lots of places and almost all of them were were flunking out after a while. I developed a personal theory because people would... Several communities tried to start in places where there were hot springs. And none of those communities ever took hold. And my theory was because as soon as anybody got any energy going they would feel a little tense and they'd go throw themselves in the hot spring <laughs> and then they would just get really limp and you know, and it would take them a long time to even get back up again. But any time anything got started, it would be neutralized. And that's, that's the effect of, of drugs and drinking. It just neutralizes your energy and you think something big has happened when nothing has happened. And you lose the habit of willpower. And in actual life, there's always these two forces pulling us there's the force that's pulling us toward lower awareness, to less energy, to tamas, tamasic energy, to dark energy, to satanic energy. You can use any words you want. And then there's the part that's pulling toward greater awareness, to be a better, finer person, to be more awake, to be more creative, to, to be more excellent at whatever we try to do, to overcome these forces. And there's no passivity in this. That's why the saints are people of tremendous willpower. Swami's will was so powerful. There was this time, you know, I knew him when he was much younger. Many of you either didn't meet him at all or met him when he was really an old man and his body could hardly move. But he was very strong when he was younger in his forties and fifties. And there was this uh, Indian man, Romit Singh, that was his name. And he was like 6'4", very handsome. He was the son of this family that we knew. Now, how did Romit get into this? Anyway, Romit used to, lie, he used to leg wrestle with his friends. You know, he, two big manly guys and they would lie on the floor and they would put their legs up and they would leg wrestle like that. And Swamiji challenged Romit, who was maybe 22 or something like that. Swami was like 5'8", five, 5'10". Five, and he, you know, he didn't look powerful because his energy was different. He didn't look like a, he wasn't buff, you know. So he said exercise for him was wearing his watch and turning over in bed. He called that uh, lifting iron. That's what he called that. <laughs> he said all he did was push a pencil and do the energization exercises, of course. But anyway, so he got meat there and, uh, you know, meat was just trying to be nice to this friend of his mother like this. And Swami actually said that Romit cheated. He started just a second before and got Swami's leg to here. And Swami's leg is here. And Swami pushed him all the way up and all the way back. And Romit was just humiliated. (laughs) I'm sure Swami had some deeper purpose. Now, somehow or another, that led to this time when we were down in Carmel and Swami was arm wrestling and leg wrestling with all these different people, us. And... Uh, Vidura, who was very strong, he, you know, and Swami just wiped out everyone. And for some reason, I thought I would, like, try like this. Swami just looked at me like, are you serious? And I was just like, I was pretty strong for my size. I could lift, I could lift hundred pounds. I carried hundred pound boxes around. I didn't weigh much more than that, but I could still do it. So I put my arm up. Honestly, he defeated me with willpower before he put any physical force he just looked at me and I went like that. <laughs> I, he must have pushed, but I was not conscious of any physical force. He just, his willpower was so strong. It was just, I was just gone. And it was, it was comical. Actually, really comical. Unfortunately, I was amused. But yeah, I remembered the experience. Oh my gosh. And that was certainly what it was like to live with him. He just never stopped. And he never relented. You know, if something had to be done, he would do it, and that was just it. He just didn't relent. I remember a woman wrote to him once, I'm looking, you know, essentially she said, I'm waiting for something to inspire me to want to work on it. He wrote back, and he said, nothing will give you energy until you give energy to it. He said, if you want to be inspired, he said, you put out energy towards something, and that's when inspiration comes, not when you just sit there passively. So everything, anything that subtly saps your willpower is the antithesis of spiritual life. And this is, again, why intoxicants reduce your awareness and then they sap your willpower. I mean, they literally make you lethargic. You know, not... I mean, that's pretty much how most people end up. You end up tired. You end up worn out. And and then how do you use your energy? And then That's that's all about wine. But you can see that that's not merely a question of whether or not you're drinking alcohol or using drugs. It's it's how you try to deal with the problem of consciousness. Do I try to deal with it by diminishing my awareness, dulling my awareness, or by expanding it? So now we have, what we have is all this electronic entertainment. And, And we use electronic entertainment whenever it's too much. And it's not like one can never do this. These are not like sins or anything like that. So when we watched movies, he would take us into town when we lived at the village to watch movies. We would go out to restaurants. We did lots of things that were fun. And it was, it's fine to relax, but it's, when, it's a question of when one becomes habituated and instead of putting out dynamic creative energy, one constantly seeks a passive alternative. If you work very hard all day and you, you know, all your energy has to go into your job or raising your children, it's okay to just kick back and watch a movie. It's not like it's a sin, but it becomes habitual. Or when you use food or sugar or other things that are similar that take the edge off rather than hong saw or even just exercise or playing music or you know something creative that expands your energy. So the intoxicants are the attitude that, that we need to be concerned with. So even a person like myself, I was, uh, I, you know, I had my one year, like when I was 18, maybe 19, I, uh, I was driving home from Ananda village once, about 2 in the morning, when Swami Kriyananda was still living, and we had these big events a lot in the summertime. And often on Saturday night of these big events, Swami would do a program that wouldn't end till 10 o'clock or something. And then I would have to do Sunday service here, which is four hours from Ananda Village. But I, I never wanted to miss his program. So I would often get on the road at, at 10.30 or 11 and then have to drive three and a half or four hours, which, you know, I could usually just do it on the uh, the energy of having been there. And I was all alone on the highway once at like one or two in the morning and the road was kind of rough, so I, I kept shifting lanes, looking for a part of the road that wasn't so rough, and then all of a sudden there's a policeman behind me, and he pulls me off to the side, and then he starts asking me questions, like, what day is it? Who's the president? You know, stuff like that. And I'm, again, I'm so naive, I'm just staring at him like, I, tell, I answer him these questions, but, and then finally it crosses my mind, and I said oh, you think I've been drinking. Then I looked at him and I said, what year were you born? And he was like born in 1989. I said, huh, the last time I had a drink was 1966. (laughs) And he said, oh, okay. I said the road was bumpy. I was just moving from side to side. (laughs) It was really, (laughs) there you are. (laughs) But I have other habits, you know drugs and drinking has been decades behind me and by the grace of God I'm glad of that. But the longing the longing to solve the problem of consciousness by dulling consciousness. That's that's existential. And that's just that's just always there. It was very interesting because Swamiji never took a Tamasic solution. I mean even if he did, it was so small, like he'd take a nap or something like that. But you know I would I could watch like two movies in an afternoon or sometimes even three movies in an afternoon, you know. He would never, ever, ever, just never. He, he didn't enjoy it. See, that's what I began to figure out. I still, I resisted it, but I enjoyed it. And Swami didn't enjoy it. He got no pleasure from diminishing his consciousness. He read books, he read novels, you know, and I, I read novels as my drug of choice. Is what I often say. <laughs> not so much anymore, but you know, when I'm really, really need a break, I'll get a novel and I'll just lie there for the whole day. But you know, that's not could be worse. But it's the same impulse. It's just the same impulse that I've had too much of this world and I want out. And I'm doing my best to expand my consciousness, but not today. I used to call it. I would. I used to call it. I would get the punies. I would be too puny to cope <laughs> and then I would just go to bed with the punies and I would open up a novel for a day and then by the end of it I would try to overcome it. But Swami never did because he didn't find it pleasurable. And that's what, that was what fascinated me. He didn't find pleasure in reducing his consciousness. Then you've really mastered it. Merely not to take dr- drugs or drink is not the same. You have to a- master the impulse to solve your problems by becoming less. So then he talks about sexuality, which, you know, sex is, is its own imperative. Swami used the phrase once. He said, I don't really know why people are so uh, un- so uncomfortable talking about sexuality. He said, I wish people were more at ease. I wish we could just discuss sexuality as, as easily as we discuss, the way he put it, any other bodily imperative he said sexuality is a bodily imperative, he said, like needing to eat or needing to sleep or feeling cold. And that's just a really interesting way to put about, think about it, which it's part of being physical, is that we have these gender identities and for whatever the reality is, there's a physical component to being compelled to one another. And that's the most obvious part of it. But also that, that physical compulsion also becomes the instrument of necessary karmic lessons. Because almost everybody, because of their compulsion to get into relationships, <clears throat> which is much of the time has that bodily compulsive element to it, <coughs> gets us all embroiled and forces us to have to learn things that we wouldn't learn otherwise. You know, it's, we, we're not necessarily growing more by having less trouble in our lives. We're just having less trouble in our lives but that doesn't mean that we're expanding our consciousness sometimes people who have no apparent troubles in their lives just haven't risen to the level yet where they can engage and so these compulsive impulses of ours and sexuality really can really confuse the brain just really impressively can confuse the brain that's what master says here they just take a, they take so much of our attention how did he put it um They don't, well, did he say, how does he put it? They're unable to gauge things in correct proportion. That's how he puts it. Because you lose your center in that force. Sometimes you have to because otherwise you would never get yourself as engaged in family and children and all the attendant lessons unless there was some compelling force that, that makes you want to do it. But the other side of it, and Swami is often also commented about this he had just a very healthy attitude towards sexuality He didn't have this really exaggerated idea that some spiritual groups get where it's all you know like sex, sex is such a sin and it's the biggest sin and you have to worry no it just has an effect on human life and it has to be integrated because it has a very powerful effect on human life Swami's fundamental attitude was very simple was you can't always control the feelings of the heart it's just like you can have all these really, really wonderful ideas about things, but you, you just can't always control what, what you're really going to feel. And everybody wants to be loved. It's just so obvious. And what Swami said, you know, sometimes people get so upset about sexual transgressions. He said, except there's so many worse things. You know, there's, there's cruelty and there's unkindness and there's disloyalty and there's hatred and sexuality is always a desire for connection, you know, for, for to be close with someone, to be noticed, to be loved, to be accepted. These are, there's, there's nothing shameful about any of those desires. They're just exactly who we are. We want to belong. We want to have children. We want to have a home. You know, these are actually in themselves, relatively speaking, uplifted ideas. And sexuality is one of the ways that God traps us into these karmic situations so that we can learn what we have to learn. But the problem is, of course, it becomes the same thing where there's this... I asked Swamiji once, you know, what's the advantage of being celibate compared to being in a relationship, as an example? He said, well, the problem with not being celibate, if, you, if you're in a relationship where sexuality is part of it, he said, you get in the habit of thinking that desires are there to be satisfied. Which is... I mean, he was so subtle in the way he would answer... And then the mind begins to think that if I have a desire, it should be fulfilled. And that can lead to, you know, just all kinds of things. And that's how we begin to argue with the people who are with us instead of loving them. Because I have a desire for you to take care of me this way. I have a desire for you to be like this. I have a desire for you to respond to me. And we get into the the thought that our desires are there to be fulfilled. And if if you really think about it, why, why would they be there to be fulfilled? I mean, just because I want them to be. I mean, that's the reasoning in a circle. Like little children. You say to the child, no, you can't have chocolate cake for breakfast. Why? Because you won't grow up healthy and strong. The child says, yes, I will. <laughs> and that's the, whole, that's the whole argument, you know? Mother says, no, I say yes. So God says, no, I say yes. And we think that's like an argument. We think like we have an actual point there. It's like, but I want it. Like, what does that mean? That just means that that's how you've conditioned your mind to think. He said, if you discipline yourself to celibacy, the advantage of it is it cuts off the, even the idea, you know, that even just because I have this desire, it doesn't mean that it's supposed to be fulfilled. The problem, Swami said, is that most people, as he put it, just become more and more tense when they when they attempt celibacy when it's not really an appropriate thing for them. Of course, in this world at this time, many people are compelled into a celibate state when they wouldn't have chosen it. But there you have it. That's just what life is like these days, isn't it? But we can <clears throat> at least take comfort in the fact <clears throat> that conceivably we can learn something. We can practice something. But we do get really, really confused. And people wake up from the dream later. Master said that people, you know, start dancing together and fall into a romantic mood. And he says, most marriages, Master said, he was somewhat cynical when he talked to the monks. Most marriages, he said, are a union of a nice shade of lipstick and a pretty bow tie. That's how he put it. (laughs) And even though he didn't countenance divorce in a casual sense, he also didn't have an exaggerated respect for marriage because he felt so many marriages were not well-founded. They were just, uh, they, they hear some nice music, they fall into a romantic mood. And the next thing he says, it's just diapers and bills. That's how he put it. I mean, he was very cynical sometimes. But he was also very respectful of the, of, of the noble capacity to love. You know, Swamiji, there was a few movies, he tended to watch the same handful of movies over and over again, And he he liked older movies because new movies were just too fast-paced and too cynical for the most part for him, with few exceptions. But there were two stories, movies that he really liked that, I don't know, they were from the 30s or the 40s. One was called Random Harvest, and actually one of them was An Affair to Remember, and it seemed like there was a third one. Not, Not any of the modern versions of An Affair to Remember, but the very first one and the Random Harvest. Both of them were human love stories, but they were noble. And they, were, they involved sacrifice, and they involved unselfishness. And Swami so, mean, was very inspired when he would watch them. You know, and earlier movies were not as raunchy as modern movies are. You know, they were just more dignified and more delicate in the way they expressed themselves. But he, he really liked them because they were just so moving. To see the, the nobility to which people could rise to, so it's not as if there's anything inherently wrong, even with sexual relationships. It's just a question of what our consciousness is in relationship to it, and whether or not you know we're using personal intimacy to to strengthen ourselves and lift us, or whether we're just using it f- for our own selfish purposes. And it's, everything is in the attitude that you have toward it. I mean, it was just very, you know, it, it it's it's a natural part of human life. But in our culture, particularly now in the West, well, I mean, it's actually true all over the world, mamma mia, it's just like one of my young friends said to me, not a person who's not part of Ananda, he just made a casual comment about something about his college life. And, you know, I try not to be too old because it doesn't serve to just be so so completely from another era nobody will ever want to talk to you. So when somebody who's you know 50 years younger than me says something that startles me, I try not to be startled. I try to act, you know, as if this is not really horrifying to me. But at the same time I also need to be sincere because otherwise there's no friendship. So after he said whatever he said, I, I contemplated it for a moment, and I said, "Do you have any idea how morally depraved what you just said is?" <laughs> and he's a little old-fashioned, and he could sort of see it. <laughs> and then I had to sort of think. I don't think I need to. I should leave it there. And I said, "Well, the good news is, whatever actual values your generation has, they'll all be self-discovered, and they'll be really yours, because there seems to be absolutely no boundaries to the life you're living." And so, whereas other people might have behaved better, that doesn't mean they were actually better. It just meant that they were hemmed in. So you guys are completely not hemmed in. So whatever you do has to spring from yourself. And really, ultimately, that's a, very, that's a gift. Because as, to be good just because you have no opportunity to be bad doesn't mean you're good. It just means you're confined. But when you're unconfined and then you choose, then it's really you. And, you know, that's basically the culture we live in now. It's just, now is just unbelievable. And it's so unbelievable, people don't even know it's odd. You know, they just don't even know it's odd. There it is. So we're really swimming upstream, especially in the area of sexuality. And so we have to, we have to be very sympathetic with ourselves and with everyone else. You know, no, no stable traditional culture ever lived like this. This is what happens when society is falling apart. And it's nice to be born when society is falling apart because everything that you are, you choose. Because there's just, you know, there's no stability anywhere. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking at you because I know that you have a son who's a teenager. I When I was in India the last time, which was a number of years ago, I had this very interesting experience. I'm fortunate because I often have... Uh, I'm, I, have, I have a number of friendships where I'm, I'm friends with two generations in a family. And you know, 20s or even 30s, and then I have, I have them here. Because if they all get interested in Ananda, I have an independent, direct relationship. And there's this woman that I was talking to. She, uh, she's an executive in a company that's based in Europe. And she has all these 30s, 25 and 30-something, very bright Indian people who work for her. And then every so often, the whole entourage goes to Europe. And she was sort of talking to me about what happens in those hotels when all of these young Indians get out of their home country and get to Europe. And, you know, we were just... She was just telling me as a matter of course. So that's all there. Now, as it happens, her children were a little younger. But I sort of smiled at her and I I sort of said... Because this is what I have had happen. I've had Indian parents and this is just... it it could be anywhere but it happens to be India where they tell me all about who their children are and then I find out who their children are (laughs) and it's not like they're terrible but they're kind of different than what their parents think they are so I'm talking to this executive woman and I said I bet you think when your children get that old they're not going to do that and she just looks so stricken you know (laughs) like of course I think they're not going to do that oh okay you know but it's like everybody's just going to have the world that they're gonna have. Oh, this is what I was saying about a world that's falling apart. We're in this transition where there's still a lot of people who who hold to and and I think it's fine and it's a good thing to you know, no traditional society is as crazy as this. This is what happens when everything breaks down. Now, that's good news because we're shifting from the age of form to the age of energy. And Forms are all breaking down, which is making everybody really insecure and radicalizing people and making them hate everybody else because they think that you're at fault because my world is crumbling. But the good news is everybody gets to choose their values, and what you have is really yours. So even if you're varying from what came before. You have, this, you have this strength in yourself, but it's very, very insecure for people. And sexuality is just running right through the middle of it because that's always been sort of one of the forms that was held so tightly. You know, it was one of the ways that society was controlled is by controlling that energy. And once you stop controlling that energy, well, it's easy to see what happens. Look around. You know, it's um, Joseph Campbell who was the proponent of all these traditional myths and stories and how society was held together by all these stories, the man who was interviewing him says, what happens when a culture loses touch with its, you know, uh, archetypes and so on? And he, he sort of looks out the window and he points, he's in America somewhere, this, he said, this is what happens. And this is what happens. Not Ananda, but this is what happens. So sexuality is just having a heyday right now. And it's hard for even very high-minded people to hold themselves um, in, in, in the spine. So we we just have to be sympathetic and realize we'll all get through it. Swami said it'll take a couple of generations, is what he said. Because you're going to have to raise, you're going to have to raise young people up differently. You know, now... Even very young children are subjected to very sensual music and very sensual images. And, you know, children used to have children's clothes. I see pictures of Swami and his brothers and, you know, they wore little sailor suits and things like that and the little girls wore little dresses. But now, little children are dressed exactly like their sexy mothers, you know. And there's just like, you, you put little kids in these very sensually oriented, kind of hip, ego, ego-affirming costumes Whereas children used to be dressed very innocently. And I mean, it's, it's a huge difference because they themselves, then they start imitating. So it's just, if, we have to start over and just raise them all completely differently. And it'll take time. And in the meantime, the good news is, it's chaos. <laughs> and there we have it. Because the principle is there that this energy is very confusing. I didn't quite finish the other part of it, but everybody really wants to be loved, and that is God-inspired. Swami wrote the book, Love Perfected, Life Divine, which is actually a complete rewrite of a novel that was published a hundred years ago by this woman named Marie Corelli, and it's a story of soulmates, and it is reputed to be the only novel that Master ever read all the way through to the end, and because Marie Corelli was a very high-minded woman, and she wrote really beautiful stories. I read a number of her books. She was very, very popular a hundred years ago. And uh, and Swami always really liked that story and Master spoke about the reality of soulmates. So, so it, was, it may have been the last book he wrote, but he picked it up at the end of his life and he rewrote it. Basically, he took a lot of her story, but she wasn't deep enough to really understand what soulmates really were. So for her it was just romantic and and Swami left the romance in but he elevated the tone of the whole thing. It's actually, it's a wonderful book. But he said, um, he actually said this to me and so it ended up being in the forward to the book. He said, the desire to be loved not only impersonally by God but personally by one other person he said, is so deeply implanted in the human heart that God would not have put that desire there if he didn't intend also to fulfill it. Isn't that interesting? So it's not like we can just dismiss these things. And Master said, before you're liberated, every soul has a soulmate. He only wrote about this in one place. And it was in in the Bible commentary where it said, what, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that has been interpreted to mean that divorce is against the Bible. Master said he's not talking about human marriage. What God has put together is that every soul has a duel. And that it, that it cannot be severed. And Master said, "This is this is what he said, I have no idea what this means. Before you are liberated, you must be reunited with your soulmate. He said, and your soulmate could be on another planet. And you could just be reunited in vision. So it's not like I have this wonderful romantic relationship. If you have physical passion, you're already not at that level, because this has to transcend all physicality. This is a, this is when you're, you know, at at the divine level. In the story that Swami wrote, the lives intersect like this, you know. So it's a story of of romance over many lifetimes, in which every time they just don't get it right. They just keep messing up and finally they both advance spiritually to the point where they can actually understand what it is they're trying to do. Now, that statement of Swamiji's, I've contemplated that a great deal because a relationship that would be, a a union that would be given to you by God is very different than the impulse we have to find it for ourselves. Now, don't even think for a second that I can stand in that center. I mean, I'm like everyone else, you know. The desire to be loved is just really deep in us. And it will be fulfilled, but not perhaps in the way we think. And so all of this physical imperative that drives us is just our trying to fulfill this higher desire, but just not quite being able to reach it yet. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just the best that we can do at this point. And so we try to do what we can do as beautifully as we can do it. And then that will give us the capacity to go beyond it. Because we don't get over things just by being afraid of them. You know, we think that it's suppressing something. It doesn't do anything to transcend it. It just suppresses it. Now, disciplining yourself with conscious awareness that even though I'm inclined this way, I don't think I want to do this... Even though there's a whole pint of ice cream in the refrigerator, and I could just sit down and eat the whole thing, I actually know that's going to make me sick, so I won't. That's disciplining yourself. But just constantly believing that happiness is in that ice cream, but I can't have it because I'll be damned to hell if I eat it. But the belief is still there that it's good and I love it, and I'm just denied it because, because of an evil god. You know, that's just suppression. You see, there's a, there's a fine line there. And you have, to always, you have to always walk that fine line. How much discipline is enough? And when does it become deleterious? These are, this is the art of the spiritual path. Well, let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll, we'll go to money. <laughs> okay. I was asked the question during the break, and it's a pretty obvious one. Why, why do I talk about wine as if it were dark? Now, I have to start out by saying that I know in many European cultures and in other cultures, wine is just a natural part of life. Children drink wine, you know, with a little water in it. And so it just kind of flows with, with the energy of things. Um, I, was, I didn't grow up in a European world and anything like that. So I know that it's a little shocking sometimes to even have the thought. And I know at the end of Swami's life, Uh, One of the physicians recommended that when his heart was behaving in a certain way that he should have a glass of wine because it it had a a calming medicinal effect on his heart. So he would, you know, it was sort of like the first time we saw him do it, it was like, he says, it's medicinal, (laughs) you know. But if, if one pays attention to one's own consciousness, and you have to become sensitive to it, and you take a little bit of alcohol, a beer, a glass of wine... If you pay attention to it, you will see that your consciousness is slightly affected by it. And Master says here, you think it's making you happier and more relaxed, but the fact is it's changing your consciousness. It's a chemical that changes your consciousness. And whether it changes it for positive or for not positive, you're not doing it with willpower, you're not doing it with attitude, you're not doing it with meditation. You're taking a chemical that shifts your consciousness. Even if it shifts it in a super positive way, however you define it, it's not actually your willpower developed to the point where you change it. It's just something um, physical that you put into your system that affects the way you see the world. And it's contrary to divine law to be able to... um, Have a permanent change by merely adding a, a chemical to your physiology you can have a temporary change but you won 't have a permanent change and so every time you do something that has a, an effect like that on your physiology that then affects your mind, it becomes habitual you be, you begin to have a desire for it you get confused about what 's me and what 's the, the drink the chemical i 'm taking and as Master says, we think that, that alcohol makes us happier, but as he says, it just makes us less inhibited. But even that inhibition, if it's only removed because of a chemical, we haven't actually overcome um, those uh, karmic conditions that are inhibiting our free expression. We've just kind of short-circuited it and it just what it does is the more you short circuit it the more the more confused we get about who we actually are and what we actually are and the more we habitually don't put out the right energy in the right way so the deleterious effect is gradual and it, it happens slowly also of course it's terrible for the physical body in excess in excess because you know there's arguments that small amounts of wine are good for you so it also all entirely depends on how much you use it and in what context but but every but master also said you know alcoholism is a very serious problem and he recommended that you never take a sip of anything alcoholic because you don't know what kind of samskaras you have he said you could you know you could become an alcoholic with one drink and he just said why risk it why risk re- reawakening that so even if it's not abused the potential for abuse is also there. And so someone could say, well, I'm just fine. And of course that's better than being really abusive, but you just don't know when hard times will hit and that habit will start coming in. You know, Just many things. He just says, why, why risk it? And, but then I have to say, and I will say absolutely, one should follow one's own common sense and one's own experience. If one gets this idea, oh, Master said I shouldn't drink, I'm never going to drink again. You know, I go to my parents' house and we've always had wine, but I can't take a sip because Master said no. You just end up developing a complex. You have to do it because, I think I won't drink because I don't like drinking. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Or, I like the way it makes me feel, but I don't really like the way it makes me feel. So therefore, that's that fine line when when you begin to discipline. I mean, when I became a vegetarian, I just suddenly developed a a real strong aversion to meat. And practically the last thing I ate that wasn't vegetarian was this hamburger, and it was on a bun, you know, with a tomato and a piece of lettuce. And that night, I dreamt that ha- that hamburger was in my veins with the bun and the lettuce. And I just, it just kept moving through my body like this, this whole big hamburger making this big bump, you know. And it was just like, no, I don't think I'll do this anymore. But it wasn't a question of my having to persuade myself. I just didn't like the way it, what it did to my body. It just What it did to my body and to my mind, I really didn't like. Recently, there's this product called Beyond Meat, you know, which is really a big thing the scientist decided he would do something for the planet. And he decided that he would, I heard an interview on the radio, he decided he would develop a plant-based meat substitute that would really satisfy meat eaters. So he's made this product. I was talking to an acquaintance today, and he says he's a big meat eater, and he's trying to get off of it for health. And he was just talking about how fabulous this is, and he asked me if I'd ever eaten it. I said, someone brought me some, but it totally creeped me out. I couldn't even take it out of the package because <laughs> it just looked like hamburger. You know, I haven't had hamburger in 50 years and I didn't even want to touch it, but to speak of cook it and eat it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he, of course, loves it because it, it looks like meat, but it isn't. And apparently this company has gone up 2,000% recently. I and mean, it's just skyrocketing because he's hit it. Now, that's because... What it feels like, I don't want. So, but if, you, if it feels good to you, then you have to keep going until it doesn't. And then you just have, what you have to do is you have to keep in your mind. Lots of things Swami told me that were not good for me. I didn't forget, but I didn't remember exactly either. <laughs> because, you know, they felt good to me. So what can I say? It's just, and I had to keep going until I realized, I, I understood why he said it. It wasn't merely that I remembered what he said, but from my own experience. Oh, that's what he was talking about. So that's what happens with all spiritual teaching. You'll hear it, and then you'll decide later whether it's true. I'll tell you a funny story. This is about sexuality. I was traveling in Seattle, Washington. This would have been 30 years ago. And uh, I was giving some programs, and these, these two Polish sisters, sisters from Poland, young women, very attractive very very female attractive people they just decided that i was just really the best and they sort of became my groupies and they were following me all around the city and they were so excited and they got really excited about ananda and about the path and about master and they bought books and then seven o'clock in the morning uh, somewhere in there I, i used to stay up there for about three weeks so this went on for about two seven in the morning one of these gals calls me up and she's just frantic and she really, really, really wants to come over and talk to me. So like no, we get I get out of my pajamas and she comes over. She and her sister, they have whispers from eternity. She opens it up and there's one of them that says, Save me from the delusion of sex temptation <laughs> and she looks the two girls look at me, is this what you're teaching? <laughs> and I never saw him again. <laughs> But they had two and a half weeks, you know, of master's teachings before they blew out. But what could I say, you know? It just wasn't for them. (laughs) But somewhere in the back of their mind, someday, when they're older and not so attractive and it's not working so well for them, it'll cross their mind that they remember somebody somewhere said something. And And that's the only way we grow. We never believe anybody, you know? So that's my explanation, but don't believe me. Don't for, don't forget I said it, but don't believe me. It's really it's useless to believe me. You have to experience it. That's the only way it works. Yeah. All right. Any other? Did you have another question? Not you. Well, because alcohol, uh, it's it's the the chemical that's in it is alcohol, and the alcohol dulls the brain. Change the alcohol changes the brain, and alcohol is a poison in the body. The comment because it because people will watch this later is, you know. There's lots of chemicals and lots of food, so what's the point about the chemicals? And because mm-hmm. the chemical of, I mean, pesticides poison us. Alcohol is a poison. I mean, when people are drunk, what's happened is they're poisoned. So, if it is why the doctor suggests to moderation? Yes. Moderation. So everything, used to exactly... everything is in moderation. Everything is in moderation, but but you know, you're speaking from the culture that you're from. Drunkenness is a big problem in the country that you live in. You in know. This in many countries it's, yes. yeah. And it's also, but it's, you know, it's an issue because it's an addictive drug. Yes. And and merely because not everybody becomes addictive doesn't mean... But of course, anything in moderation, I said Swami himself would take a glass of wine, but he would only take it when his heart was acting up in a certain way, which was, you know, once every few months or something yes. like that. Because it's a sedative. And, you know, so it's a sedative, but... It's a a, a medical fact that excessive drinking of alcohol has very deleterious effects on the body. Somebody can't pretend it doesn't. I'm not... I I mean, I I said at the very beginning I conceded that you know that that people argue that a little bit of wine is healthy. I'm not going to say that it isn't because I have no experience with it. But I do know that I mean, I, my alcohol consumption was tiny, very tiny, but I would, during my one year of college, I liked to dance, and I would go every weekend, I would, I went to college right here, and as it actually happened, the Grateful Dead was just starting out, and they were a tiny little band, and often they would play, you know, they would play these house parties in this area, and, you know, I would find out where they were. I wasn't... I mean, this was all, you know, again, this was a hundred years ago, and I would go or just go where there would be a live band, and I would always walk in and I would either drink half a beer or a glass of wine immediately, and then I would dance all night. But it affected me. That was very little, once a week. But the reason I did it is because it had an effect on my mind, and the effect it had on my mind was to reduce my inhibitions. So that was my experience. So as soon as I began to understand, I mean, you know, this was like, I did this for six months, four months maybe of my life, you know, it's just not a big part of it. Moderation is not the same as overindulgence, but that doesn't mean that it has no effect. And it's better just to say that and then make a decision about what you're going to do than then try to get that off the table. So even a tiny bit of alcohol has an effect. Then you decide what you're going to do. I was talking to someone recently and I said, because they were having to face some very difficult realities in their life and they didn't want to face them. Because if they really faced them, then they were going to be faced with decisions they didn't want to have to make. So I tried to say, look, there's two issues here. First, let's find out what you really think and what's true. Then we'll decide what to do about it. Because if you're so worried about what you're going to do about it that you can't figure out what's true, then you're always confused. So it's a tremendous temptation on the spiritual path in life that something is presented to you and I don't want to do it, so I'm going to try to say it isn't true. Where it's much better to say, alcohol isn't really very good for me, wine, isn't, wine has an effect on me, but gosh, I've been drinking it since I was a child and it's what my family always does and it's really not a big deal to me. And so there you are and then Master says it's not good for me. That's it. But if we try really hard to make this not true then we're always confused because we're setting up something where we can't face ourselves that we're trying to be something that we're not. You know, I, I can tell you I can make a longer list of the things that I'm supposed to do that I don't do <laughs> than the things that I'm supposed to do that I do do. And it's taken me many years to just be able to throw up my hands about that. I spent a long time not able and it just makes, gives you, as Swami said, it's not only that you have the weakness but then you have this huge complex on top of it. Whereas the weakness itself is just who you are. And you'll grow out of it. But if you have a huge complex on top of it which is it's not true, it can't be true, it isn't true, then you're just in a mess. Whereas if you just say I love wine and I drink every weekend then all you're doing is just drinking every weekend you know you'll get over it and I love women I just go out to the you know I go try to find a woman every weekend well that's not necessarily so admirable but there you have it you know it's just like what it is and you'll grow out of it when your experience teaches you but if you have a complex about it you'll be nuts for the rest of your life and for many incarnations to come does that make sense? yeah we just are who we are does that make sense? Yes, thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> so we, the last one we have is money. So, yes, Alex. Question about Alex Did you mentioned how yes. anything can yeah. be uh-huh. a soulmate, an alien or a cat. No, is, no, no, I didn't say that. Yeah. Oh I said go ahead. Uh huh. Is there only one or are there multiple? Uh, well see, Master only talked about this one time. Mm. Swami said because he knew he knew that if he really talked too much about soulmates, people would forget every single thing he said except soulmates. So Swamiji himself was always interested in it. Toward the end of his life, he, Swami talked about it more, and then he finally wrote that whole book. Um, it's it's simply intriguing that everything in the everything in creation is dual. So why would why would the, not the individual human soul be dual? I mean, we already have this masculine. Let's use yin yang because male-female gets confused with the gender of your body. But there's this yin-yang balance that makes the whole. And why would... We're manifested out from creation and have to come back. Why would we not also be dual? I mean, I'm just telling you the little bit that Swami said. And then we have master's statement. That, But see, the, in people's minds, they think it's a, it's a gender-based romantic relationship, passionate and physical but Master says it's, it's, it's at a very high level. But, but it's, it's natural that if in all these incarnations you're that close to someone, that you would encounter them. That's why this novel, this book is so interesting. It's just fascinating to read it until they basically had to learn perfect love. But you wouldn't, it would have to be someone who's more or less on your vibration, more or less on your level... I, are soulmates always liberated together? You know, I... I, Golly shucks. I don't know. Yes. Uh, if I understand correctly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that soul is beyond creation. It's part of God, so it's exempt from duality. No, that that's not correct. At least not the way I understand it. Now, bear in mind, mm-hmm. I, this is book knowledge on my part, mm-hmm. but the jiva... Soul is an inaccurate word in English. It's the part of the problem. Jiva is the Sanskrit word for um, the unique individuality. We, the, Ameri- the English word is soul, but soul is a little confusing. So the jiva is the, the, the individualized spark of divinity that is the central reality and the continuous reality of all our incarnations. And so the, the from unmanifested spirit... the jiva comes forth and then goes through this long cycle of incarnations and then finally the jiva merges back into the infinite. Now, since it was only an expression of the divine, it never ceases to be divine, but nonetheless, it identifies with its limitation. And so then it finally overcomes that false identification and realizes that I am now and always was. I, I thought I was the bubble, but in fact... I am the sea, but that doesn't mean I—I'm not also the bubble. Mm. So according to this, at that moment when Satya comes out in creation, everything divides, and, and there's two jivas that were manifested from the same bubble. I mean, I don't know how—I don't even know how to think about it. But that's what he's talking about. And so then, when the, the jiva's begun to lose its false identification with limitation and comes closer and closer and then ultimately identifies with the infinite that somewhere in that process a necessary step is that the two halves have to reunite before they can merge. And all of that is just words to me. You know, they're interesting and intriguing words but I I have no idea what they really mean. The way it's been meaningful to me and this is where I started is I know what it feels like to be compelled to be with someone. Either because in just a general sense I felt lonely, or in a specific sense I felt attracted. You know, I'm 72 years old, there's been a lot of water under the bridge here. Right? So I've been through, I mean, you know, from a young age, whenever I first started getting interested in romance, and when puberty and all of that happened, I know what it feels like to long for something outward or to be powerfully attracted to some other individual. You know, we all, we we know what that is. And that, to me, when I contemplate the idea of a soulmate, I know, I know that that longing pulls me out of my center. Whereas I can imagine a kind of fulfillment that takes me deeper into it. Now that, I've had, I've had wonderful friendships and wonderful romance in my life, so It's not like it's so clear-cut. You know, my relationships have all happened on a very high level with a very deep level of spiritual commitment in them. But at the same time, I can tell the difference between being deeply centered and being outwardly focused. So I've had... I found it very interesting to meditate on that difference. What would it feel like to have a fulfillment that did not pull me out of myself at all That did not require that, but just like, and I can just feel how different that would be. And also, how it would be to not be compelled. You know, when I think about a future incarnation, which I fully expect to have, I've been monastic and married in this life, both. And I'm I'm comfortable with both. And I sort of said, like, I don't really care whether I'm monastic or have, have a partner or anything. I just don't want to be compelled anymore because I have not made free choices. My choices have been compelled. And that's the key. And so a soulmate union would not be compelled because it would be inherent. It would be your inner nature rather than an outward longing. And even if the outward longing is still subtle and is still elevated, it's still moving you out of yourself. So, for me, this is just an exercise. This is not a conclusion. but when I read Swami's book and when I really meditated on his words, I thought, "Wow that's he's really talking about something else, and I, I would be very interested to experience that. Thank you Joyce yeah mm. Compel means that I can't help myself, I have to do it. yeah, it's like i I don't want to eat those cookies, but I can't resist. I feel compelled. And, and certainly romance and attraction to other people, I, certainly in my life, you know, I just, I'm compelled. I, I'm not at peace. I'm not able to choose. I'm not able to say, whatever you want, God, it's, this is what I want. Well, I just have to say, if I want it, I hope he does too. And I've actually literally had to say that. I don't have any choice. I'm compelled to do this. It's not an option to not do it. I hope you don't mind. And sometimes he has and sometimes he hasn't. <laughs> I just that's but exactly what I was saying before. It's like if I'm compelled, I can't pretend I'm not. I can't just say I don't care anything you want, God, it's a lie. You know, I'm compelled. Well, the answer to that is, of course you should then. You know, I'm actually, we're not, we're not quite talking on the same level, so I'm going to answer you and just say yes. I mean, because you're telling me what's true for you, and I'm saying, go girl, you're right. Okay? And then I'm also talking over here about something else. I'm twice your age, and I've had a whole lot of different experience, so my, my story is different than your story. So that doesn't make either of us wrong. It just means that we're, we're, you know, we're just in different places doing different things. Is that fair? Yeah, when I was compelled, compelled was where it was at. (laughs) But having been compelled, I'm now thinking about it from another angle. And I'm a little scared about being 21 again because I remember it all too well. (laughs) Okay? I think even though we didn't get to money, I think we're done. (laughs) So, God bless you all. Thank you. (laughs) And I have to say, we just did one. We did most of one. 398. That's all we did.